So this morning, Acts 16 is where we're going to be. Acts chapter 16. If you brought a Bible with you, always great to have it uh, and have it out, have it open. If you've got it on a device, that's fine. The words will be up on screen as well. Um, Emily Black is going to come and read the passage for us this morning. Thanks, Emily. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God. Who are you who are telling you the way to be saved? She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called out for lights, called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sir, what must, we, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all the household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrate sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now they do now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escort them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Thanks, Reuben, for preaching 18 times in a row. Uh, that's a pretty big effort. And as, as I was thinking about this this week, I was just thinking about all the people that have served us in lots of different ways during COVID. And uh, let's just take a time to give everybody a round of applause for all the people that have served us during this time of COVID. So let's... Lots of things were happening while we weren't here, and lots of people were being ministered to, lots of people carrying on ministry. Uh, over the last few weeks, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Reuben was preaching a sermon, he was talking about when he was in um, a city that came under a missile attack, and I was thinking about this time that I came under a missile attack, and um, how stupid I was. 
so I'm going to tell the story. It's got nothing to do with my sermon, really, but it's just a chance to let you all know that I'm stupid. My wife's smart. Um, so when we were in Afghanistan, um, Bagram was the um, American Air Force Base, which we used sort of as an R&R stop. So uh, New Zealanders were in a place called Barmian. We'd fly into Bagram and spend a few days there, eat cheeseburgers, that sort of stuff, you know, good American wholesome food, fries, cheeseburgers for breakfast, lunch, dinner, um, and uh, sort of relax, uh, go to the USO concert. Uh, Billy Ray Cyrus was singing when I was there, and for some reason they also brought out a woman called Anna Kornikova, who was a tennis star. She didn't do anything, she just stood there and looked awesome, and for some reason the soldiers really liked that. <laughs> who knew? Um, and so we're there one night, and uh, we're watching a movie, and, you know, some things happen. And I called my wife the next day on Skype, and, hey, Jen, how you going? Good, good. Where are you? I'm in Bagram. Yeah, how's it going? Good. What'd you get up to last night? Oh, well, you know, we were watching a movie there in the Kiwi Lines. It was a lot of fun. And then what happened? Oh, then the sirens went, and we had to go into the shelter, because uh, there was a missile attack. The Taliban were launching missiles. What did you do? Oh, it was a good movie. So we... We stayed and carried on watching it. What? Oh, it missed by, you know, six or seven hundred meters. We were fine. Six hundred meters? Are you crazy? Look, no New Zealanders were hurt or injured. It was, you know, American was killed, but not us. So we were fine. So uh, my wife said to me, don't do stupid things like that again. So what I did was not tell her any of the things I got up to while I was over there until I got home um, because I didn't want to alarm her anymore. So thank you for that reading, Emily, and we're in Acts chapter 16 this morning. And what I want to do uh, is just bracket out a few things before we dig into the text. So uh, as you were probably listening to it or reading along, you probably saw there are a lot of different themes and a lot of different ideas that you could look at in this passage. And I'm just going to have to ignore quite a few of them to focus on one big piece this week, because there are so many fascinating, interesting things in this text that go on. I don't want to get lost in lots of different ideas and lots of different pieces. So I'm going to tell you up front today what I'm going to look at, and everything I say will sort of come back to that. That's the plan, okay? So the plan doesn't work out. It means I've gotten lost somewhere, and I've gone down a rabbit hole, and I've had a good time intellectually, and it doesn't make sense. So we'll go from there. So um, one of the things that comes up in Acts is this concept of kingdom, this idea that we belong to the kingdom of God. And uh, we often don't think of kingdom very often, even though we, we technically live in one. But for us, when we think of the sovereign, we think of an old lady with a handbag, right? So that's what we think of ki kingdoms. And she's lovely, she's delightful, and she smiles, and she knighted that old dude uh, who raised all that money for the National Health Service last night. So it was like the first event she'd done in a while. All right, so um, we don't think of kingdom very often, but one of the things that's at play in the book of Acts is this idea that we live in this world, we live in a, an actual earthly kingdom, but there's another kingdom that we belong to. And in fact, that kingdom is our first priority. That's the kingdom that we really belong to. Now, when I was a kid in church growing up, it seemed to me that we often talked about kingdom in the sense of kingdom, heaven, it's all in the future. It's, it's going to happen one day. Just hold on to earth. And when we get there, we'll all be happy. Um, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Anyone sing that song when they were kids? Yeah, some of us older people that went to more conservative churches. Excellent. And, you know, just hold on, and when you get to heaven, you're going to get a gold house with a silver lining, and it's going to be phenomenal. You don't have to worry about anything then. Just hold on and give faith in this life, and when you get to heaven, you've arrived. That's when the kingdom's going to happen. Um, but as you start pressing through the text, you start seeing that the kingdom's actually meant to be now as well. 
This idea that we're actually living in the kingdom now, not in some distant future. Now, yes, it's not the final product. It's not the arrival product. It's not how it's going to look. It's not going to be the way God wants it. But we're going to start getting little tastes of it, little glimpses of it now, little, little flickers of the flame of the kingdom of God every day. And again, we, we struggle with this because at times there's so many things we're worrying about. We've got bills. We've got kids going back to school. We've got kids going back to school, praise the Lord, um, for some people. Uh, we've got uh, lots of things happening, and we get soaked up into this, this world that we forget about the fact that we belong to another kingdom. And uh, last week, I think, all right, let's press the button. Let's see if I can make this work. No. Nah. Try it again. There we go. It worked. Magic. Um, last week we talked about grace, and probably one of the best sermons I've heard on grace in my life, actually. I thought Reuben did a really great job summing it up. Grace plus nothing equals everything. And so the comments I make this week about what it's like to live in the kingdom, I don't want it to be misinterpreted that it's now grace plus doing stuff to be in the kingdom, or grace plus having the right attitude, grace plus some other things. Um, there's a couple of quotes from this guy today in my sermon. I found him particularly useful. I just want to read this one out. The kingdom narratives oppose the world's narratives. You are valuable to God. God loves you no matter what. Your worth is not dependent on your performance or on what others think of you. Your worth is found in the loving eyes of God. If you win, God loves you. If you lose, God loves you. If you fast and pray and give your money to the poor, God loves you. If you are sinful and selfish, God loves you. He is a covenant God, and his love never changes. You are valuable, precious, and worth dying for, just as you are. So this kingdom language flows out of this grace. They're not separate ideas. So it's not grace, and now you have to live this way, or you have to do these things, or be this way. In a sense, we do these things, or we live a certain way, or we focus on this kingdom because we have grace. That's what it flows from. So uh, we're in Acts 16, just a little bit of a setting. So we've had this council in Jerusalem. Paul sort of got the green light on his gospel. Yep, you're, you're in the right space. That's exactly, we're all on the same page. That's the message we want to share. And he goes off on what we sometimes call the second missionary journey. Uh, although a comment I read while I was studying for the sermon suggests that Paul spent about 30% of his time in Acts in jail. So it probably would be better Paul's uh, prison journeys might be a better, a better way of framing that. So Paul leaves uh, Jerusalem, goes up to Caesarea, which was a major port, and then ends up in Turkey and Greece and, and travels around. Uh, part of where he goes is his hometown, where he grew up, where his family's from, Tarsus, which was a major city. He ends up over in what we would call Greece and wanders down a little bit and then ends up back to where he started. The other two maps, which I've kind of hidden, uh, just show you that Philippi is on a major road. And uh, Paul taps into these Roman roading systems when he's sharing his gospel. So uh, there's a lot of mountains where, he is, where Philippi is, sort of around it and nearby, which would have made walking difficult. But Paul kind of uses the tools of, of his life uh, that are around him that he can engage with. Uh, some of this road's actually still there. You can go and visit if, you've been, if you ever go to Greece. Um, one of the pluses about slave labor is they got to build things really well because labor was not a cost factor for them. So they built some of these roads very deep and very thick, and some of them are still standing. Some of the bridges are still standing from this time period, 2,000 years later. So stonework uh, built. And if we click along, just a couple of things I want to raise about that. Um, Philippi, kings of this time period, loved naming cities after themselves. So Philip was the name of the guy that founded this place. 
hence Philippi. So Leonopolis is going to be a city if I ever get a chance to name one after myself one day. All right, so um, that's Alexander the Great's dad. So he, he united Greece the old-fashioned way by conquering everybody. All right, so he just brought everybody together under his kingdom, and then his son went off and blitzed the Persians out east. Uh, and this city was founded by a group of, of settlers from a nearby island. That's actually quite important. So all the facts I'm going to put up here aren't just intellectual stimuli, right? They're actually going to have a, a point of what we're going to talk about. Uh, about 300-odd uh, years later, the city seems to have sort of fallen down. Uh, the Romans out to the west have engaged in a civil war. Uh, there's a massive battle nearby Philippi in about 40 BC. Uh, if you've heard of guys like Brutus and Cassius, they lose that battle and die. Mark Anthony wins the battle. Then Mark Anthony and his uh, brother-in-law, uh, Augustus Caesar, have a big falling out, and they refound the city with Roman veterans. Right? So they basically chop the city up into parcels of land and give it out to Roman veterans that they retire here. Okay, that's quite important. So now what's happened in the city is it seems as though there's a couple of three layers of peoples in the cities. There's sort of the original settlers, there's some Greeks, and there's some Romans. And the Romans are the descendants of these veterans, and they have all the power, and they have all the land. All right, so they are on top. Uh, and that's its technical name in Latin, Colonia Augustus Julius Philippinus, which is, we're a colony founded by Julius Augustus, all right? Uh, later on, the church becomes a bit of a powerhouse. Uh, there's a guy called Polycarp of Smyrna. He's on his way to Rome to be executed. About 160, he writes a letter to the church, so talks a little bit about some of the themes and then a few years ago, it was actually declared a World Heritage Site. So they've been doing an archaeological dig there for about 100 years, and they've uncovered about 15% of the old city. Right, so lots of things happening. So we've got these three different layers of people with the Romans on top. Um, and they were the descendants of the veterans after the Civil War. Um, and this is quite important. The, the two leaders that were... Um, in charge of the city, or the magistrates were appointed directly by Rome. They weren't elected locally. Right? So they were um, appointed by head office, so to speak. Um, sort of what I wanted to, to hammer here, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it in a few moments, is there's a lot of things in this passage that point to this concept of status. All right? Status in the kingdom of Rome. Now, normally when we mean status these days, we think about Facebook, all right? So I'm going to update my st Facebook status or my Instagram status or whatever other things I'm going to do with some sort of, uh, depending on the mood I'm in, depending on the person, I love those status updates when someone has some sort of mysterious phrase, just need some time out today. Then what did you tell me? You know, just, just going to do this. Thanks, dude. Appreciate that. So... Status is, is used differently in this time, but status is about where we sit and stand and where our pecking order is in our culture. Now, we don't, we don't think of that very often, about us having status in our culture. We kind of do, but it's measured slightly differently. These guys had status in different ways. Um, and one way they did this is in the world that they've uncovered, there were inscriptions everywhere. And when I mean everywhere, the forum where Paul's been taking place, there's actually even an inscription on the concrete. The guy that, that built the forum wanted everybody to know every time they walked on the forum that he gave the money to the city to build the forum. And there's inscriptions everywhere that let you know where someone's coming from. And they're all in Latin still. 
All right, so this city kept its Latin roots, kept its Roman roots, and kept its um, connections to Rome. Uh, that's sort of some of the, some of the uh, inscriptions today where the forum is, a bit of a map. Uh, I think you can get this PowerPoint, so that's more just interesting than anything. So this is where this comes important, and we'll sort of see some, um, some connections here. The Romans, they talked about the way of the elders, the mas mastorum. You know, we are operating like our ancestors did. The way in which you keep covenant with the kingdom of Rome, even though technically it was a republic, is by keeping the traditions up that we've always done. So if you look in verse 21 of Acts chapter 16, the accusation made against these people is twofold. They're Jews, and they're teaching something new. New's bad. Now, we love new things. New gadgets, new software. Downloaded, upgraded my, my operating system on my Mac this week. It was a disaster. All my games won't work now. All right? We love new stuff. They hated new stuff. New stuff was bad. It was against the ancestors' tradition. So here comes Paul and Silas, and they start doing things. They've cost this guy some money, and his accusation is not that they've cost me money. His accusation is, one, racist, they're Jews. So that's always a good way to get people on side in this part of the world, is remind everybody where they are in the racial pecking order, and Jews are at the bottom. Now, the Jews religiously got a bit of a pass because their religion was old. So the Roman attitude towards religion is, we think what you do is a bit weird. That monotheism, that's just odd. That's, that's dangerous. But we recognize you've been doing it for a while, so we'll give you a semi-pass. But you're still Jews, remember where you are in the pecking order. And the accusation is, these guys are going against what we've always done. So the inscriptions um, that we've seen around this, uh, this forum, that we've seen around Rome, um, up this next one here. Uh, a lot of them have to do with the course of honor. So in the Roman society, uh, men, sorry ladies, you weren't part of this. Um, Roman women were just meant to have babies, basically. That's, that's kind of all they were for. Um, they didn't even have names. All right. So Roman women, they took their dad's last name as their first name. So my daughter would be uh, Flanina. Uh, and if you had another one, she was the younger. And if you had a third one, she was called the third. So girls didn't get names. So all of what I'm about to say was all about male achievement, okay? So kind of interesting. Start thinking about the gospel speaking into this now, about how we're equal, we're the same, there's no value other than being in Christ. So the radical and challenging nature of, of the gospel. These guys had this idea that you started off on this honor ladder and you went up the ladder and you got different jobs that had more and more prestige and more and more status in the community until you reached the highest level, which was consul. That was the top rung. And in these inscriptions all around this forum, all these are about where that person got to. I donated this building and I was this and I was that and I did this and I had this status. And the thing about some of these uh, jobs, there was no salary so if you took the job, it was going to cost you a lot of money. So that was part of, you had to be rich to do some of these things. So I'm going to become a, a, a magistrate, which means I'm going to have to donate things in the name of the city. But I want everybody to know my family did that. And my dad was a consul. And my great-grandfather did this. And my father did that. And I'm carrying on. 
uh, with all these other virtues over here on the other side here. So some of these words sound familiar to us, um, but they're quite different to what they mean. The idea is a Roman citizen had this idea of veritas, fidas, and pietas, which equaled his dignitas. In other words, his faithfulness to the ancestral traditions, his status, his position in society had to be maintained. And the higher you went up, the more strict these rules became. I was reading a story this week about um, a famous orator commenting on the fact that this senator was considered immoral because he held his wife's hand in public. That's disgusting. Because men don't do that, right? So the status of you keeps that all over there. That, that's your home life. Push that back over there. So just look at a few more ways in which we see some of this in the text. Verse 16, uh, I didn't mention patron and clients, but this idea is that everybody was the client or the patron of somebody. So a patron was somebody who had gravitas, who was important in the community. And every morning, you would go to your patron's house and say, good morning. And he would come out, hello, Reuben, good to see you. Here's some money. You know, here's some food. Do you need anything? Are you all good? No, patron, we're all fine. All right, we're going to go down to the forum today. Where's my posse? So all of his clients would follow him down to the forum. And the more clients you had, the more important you were. So when it came time to vote for things, your clients didn't have to worry about who they were going to vote for. They knew exactly who they were going to vote for, whoever the patron told them to vote for. All right? So your patron was rich and powerful and took care of you. And you took care of him. Uh, verse 20, we see the chief magistrates um, who are in charge, and they are giving law and order. So they would have had to work their way up the, this rank system to get to their position. So this was the highest office in this town. You were the top two guys in this town if you were a magistrate in this city. And one of the ways in which people knew that is your toga as a Roman citizen had different colored stripes down the side to indicate your rank, just in case anybody would forget that you're the top dog. And then uh, in verse 24, we see that the magistrate commands the jailer to take care of Paul and Silas. He commands him. Now, we don't live in a culture that has a lot of commands given to us. You know, I think all of us kind of did all right during COVID at the start, but maybe some of us who don't like to be told what to do started rankling near the end, getting a bit scratchy. I've got a lot of friends in America. Some of them, uh, shall we say, more free-orientated than others and are reacting against their government's commands. Uh, in the military, you can't even command people unless it's what's called a lawful order. Right? So you can't just tell someone what to do unless it's lawfully legal for you to do that. There's a whole lot of rules around that. All right, so here's the, the, the magistrates commanding this person. These people had power and status and they exercised it on a daily basis. All right, they wanted to make sure everybody in the community knew where they were um, in the chain of things. And in verse 33, we see the jailer's whole house uh, is baptized, uh, and he dresses uh, their wounds. He, he takes care of them. He, he submits himself to Paul. Let's look at Paul. That's the kingdom of Rome. Maybe some of that sounds familiar to our culture. You know, we don't necessarily have status as far as jobs go, but, you know, we have status in other ways. Whip out the right phone, 
got the right phone. Maybe in your social group, having the best phone, having the most expensive house, having the car, having the right job, wearing the right brands. Um, it's, it's fascinating how we measure status and importance um, and uh, make sure that everybody knows where we are on that totem pole and how we get treated. Here's Paul. He's operating in a different kingdom. He looks at this differently. Um, in verse 16, he's going to the place of prayer. So in the earliest part of chapter 16, we see that um, Paul goes and finds the people praying. Paul goes out to that place. He's an important person within the church. In theory, if he was keeping to a status, they should be coming to him. So he's willing to, in Romanize, demean himself to go and connect with people to talk about the gospel. Now, he should be standing there at the academy or in some important place, and the disciples, the people that want to learn, should come to him, and they should um, be respectful, and they should act in a certain way because he's the person with the key knowledge. And so Paul goes out. So yes, there's some seeking people out. We all understand that. But some of these people know who he is now, and he still goes to them. He still seeks out these people. He still is happy to not lean on his status as someone important in the church. And if you notice in verse 18... Um, again, I'm not going to talk about the, the freedom from oppression, spiritual oppression, but he says to her, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Paul makes it very clear in the Acts and his letters that he does nothing on his own. He has no authority other than Jesus Christ. He's under Jesus at all times. Now, Roman magistrates didn't do that. They demonstrated how powerful and important they were all the time. And here's Paul saying, not me that's doing this. I'm not doing anything. It's Jesus who's going to bring you out. It's his authority. It's his status, so to speak, that'll drive you out. Uh, in verse 21, um, it's a bit of a spicy one, verse 21. A lot of, a lot of uh, disagreement about what it means. Why didn't Paul claim his Roman status up front? He does at the end, but why doesn't he do it up front? I don't know about you, but if I was hauled before a trial... I'd be screaming about my rights. Where's my lawyer? You can't do this. You don't have the authority. You know, all dignified, of course, you know, um, sometimes. And here's Paul. doesn't say anything. He doesn't demonstrate that he's a Roman. The best suggestion I had with this was that Paul didn't want to set a wrong precedent in the community. See, what Paul's not doing is the first time there's trouble with belonging to a different kingdom or being identified with a different group of people, he doesn't play his escape card. He's not slumming it in the kingdom of God. He's not just hanging out for a bit when it's convenient. He's going to go down this path no matter what happens. He doesn't demand his rights. He doesn't scream about what's important to him. And, and his dignity, his dignitas has been offended. He makes sure he's thinking about the kingdom first and the people he's been engaging and the example he's giving. So I really found that impressive. Now, as I was reading this, I was thinking, what would I do if I'd been beaten and thrown into jail unjustly, well, even justly, let's be honest, probably wouldn't be singing hymns and praise to God and praying at midnight. All right? I'd probably be crying, wailing, demanding my lawyer. I've got rights. I probably wouldn't be a particularly great example about 
the kingdom. Maybe that's just, maybe everybody in here would say, no, that time I was arrested and beaten because of my faith, I stood firm and I was a wonderful example. And maybe I'm the odd man out in the room. But I'm looking at Paul here and in verse 25, he's still praying with Silas. And what I like about verse 25, if you look at it again, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. You might have hymns of praise to God. They're still thanking God. Now, we start questioning our faith if we get a speeding ticket. You know, we question our faith if we have an argument. We have one little thing go wrong in our lives and we start saying, well, maybe this whole Christianity is not true and God doesn't care about me. Here's a guy being beaten and the Romans were experts at, at giving pain, right? They knew how to beat somebody. And then he's in jail and they're praying and they're praising God. He's not worried about his dignity. He's not worried about whether he's been treated unjustly. He's not worried about his rights. He's not worried about his status. He's worried about making sure God's praised and lifted up at all times because that's the kingdom that's very important. Verse 31, we drop down. We have the earthquake, a miraculous event. Verse 31, believe in Jesus. Again, he keeps it grounded that don't believe in me. Don't, don't, don't get all excited about who I am or my example. This is all about Jesus. And then in verse 32, he speaks to him in the word of the Lord. The whole family's baptized. They dress his wounds. He serves this man. The, the jailer um, surrenders his dignity by serving somebody that's been condemned, who's been beaten up. And we can talk about citizenship, but I, I want to drop down to verse 40. I only really noticed this a couple of days ago, and I thought it was really kind of interesting. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the believers and encouraged them. Then they left. So here's a guy, two guys, they've been beaten. They've had their dignity diminished. They've had their rights overturned. They've stood up for the gospel. They've converted people. They've done all these things. And, you know, as much as we would like to think, or as much as I would like to think, if I say we, I really mean me, all right? So don't, don't think I'm saying it's you. It's just these are my struggles. We, um, I'd probably be in that house that night at Lydia saying, all right, come on. I've been doing pretty good this week. I want a little bit of praise. I want you to all know what a spiritual giant I am at this stage. All right, so here are the things I've done this week. I took a beating for the Lord. I converted a house. I sorted those magistrates out. It's time to give me a little, a little boost up. And what does he do? He encourages them. All right, I forgot about these parts. There we go. It's all down there. Princes, right, status, rejoice, honoring. And this is the part that I'm going to sort of punch out from now. The jailer would have seen a lot of prisoners come and go over the years. Uh, and they think they've actually found the jail, which is quite near the forum, which is near the, the marketplace. There's cells there and, and, and so forth. The jailer saw something different in Paul and Silas. Right? He was used to status. He was used to power. He was used to the way in which the kingdom of Rome operated. And yet he's engaging with this guy that's operating in a different manner. Paul's not only talking about a different kingdom, 
He's living a different kingdom. His actions and his words connect and back each other up. And the jailer is intrigued. He's interested. Now, when I was a, a child, sometimes, you know, there was this corny line in sermons. If you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? All right? With Paul, the answer is yes. Right? This jailer's like, this, this guy's different. If, if anyone else had, had had an earthquake happen to them, they would have gone. And the reason why the jailer was going to kill himself is because failure to do his duty would have lent to a gruesome death for him and possibly his family. Right? Romans took failure of duty quite seriously. So, as I was reading this, I was thinking, so what, is, what does all this mean? This is fascinating. What do we do with this? Um, here's another quote from James Bryan Smith. In the kingdom of the world, people feel disempowered, vulnerable, impotent, and exposed. The quickest way to deal with this insecurity is to gain power to take charge. Feeling weak? Go to the gym and build muscles. Feeling financially vulnerable? Build wealth. Feeling unfairly treated by others? Fight back. Take them to court. Assert your rights. The dominant narrative is, if someone hits you, hit them back harder. Paul didn't act like that. Paul acted differently. Um, so I was reflecting, what do we do with all this? Um, you know, great, Leon, fantastic. Interesting, um, interesting points you've made there. Um, <clears throat> okay, lunch is going to get on. We've got a roast cooking. Um, plus, I want to get out and do some work in the garden. What do we do with all this? I was thinking of two things in which we can do about, if we're going to truly embrace the idea that we live in a different kingdom. So the Roman kingdom... Much like ours, yes, there's different parts that are different, and we can talk about the history and all that sort of jazz, but status, image, power, prestige, money, whatever, whatever we want to label. And here is Paul talking about and living a kingdom where we think of others, we do other things, there's a bigger picture, there's something beyond us, it's about Jesus, it's about living by grace, it's this other way of living. And I thought, what are two things we can do that won't cost you money? All right, so there's number one point for this morning. This is not going to cost you any money to what I'm about to say. And, and the reason I came up with these two ideas is over the last few months and last few years, I've seen a lot of sort of things come and go, a lot of sort of issues. And people start getting on the television and they start screaming and yelling about why their issue is important. There's hashtags, there's slams, there's takedowns, there's videos, watch this clip and you'll change your mind. You know, all this sort of stuff, and then next year there's another issue, that one's forgotten, and there's a new one. There's always a reason why you should be doing something. And I'm thinking, for most of that, I feel totally disconnected from the ability to change any of that. How can I actually change the world that I actually live in on a day-to-day -day basis? I'm not going to engage certain people. I don't, I don't meet certain leaders. I'm not involved in that sort of stuff. I'm not... A cultural influence like that, but I do talk to my neighbors. I do talk to my family. I do talk to my friends. I do engage with people in different ways. I can actually do things with those people that demonstrate a different kingdom orientation. People are going to get anger and revenge and violence and attacks and status and importance everywhere. What can we do that's different? And here's the first one I came up with. This is, again, talking to myself, listening to others. Um, I struggle with this. 
partly because I'm an extrovert and I kind of get excited when you're talking. I want to jump into the conversation and give you some other feedback. And my darling wife, who's not an extrovert, has had to train me over the last 25 years to not do that. So the person you meet now is the toned down, polished up version of Leon. I don't know how she married me, to be honest, all right? So listening to others, actually listening to other people, being present, not looking at Facebook, not looking at the phone, not thinking about 300 other things, not making a to-do list, not, not sort of brushing them off, not thinking you know what they say, but actually taking the time to listen. I saw a, a little a course this week that was talking about some listening skills. And one of the points was, you should listen to the point that you could repeat back the person's idea to them. And they say, yes, that's exactly what I think. Now, how many times do we think we understand what somebody has said to us and we've got it wrong? Now, sometimes that's amusing. You know, I thought you said milk. No, I said bread. Ah, okay, I'll go out and get the milk, the bread. No, I said bread, not milk. Okay, right? So sometimes we're just minor inconvenient stuff, but sometimes people are telling us things, important things about what's going on in their lives, and we're not listening. We're not listening at all. And being a person that listens, that genuinely listens to another human being, is going to be countercultural today and demonstrate we belong to a different kingdom. What does it mean to walk in another's shoes? Every single person here this morning has got a story. It's tempting to assume we know each other's stories. Oh, I know where you come from. I know your background. But we often don't. We don't know what's formed that person. We don't know the, the issues that have shaped their lives. And the only way to do that is to take the time to listen to them and find out what makes them the person they are today. When we actually listen and ask questions... Um, it's a tough exercise. I, I was, when I was doing some of my studies, I was doing this course, and we, one of the things we had to do was we, we got broken up into pairs with somebody you didn't know, and the other person had to talk about themselves for 15 minutes, and all you could do was ask a clarification question. Oh, was that before or after that happened? Oh, that was before. Okay. So you couldn't make any comments or any feedback. That was really hard to actually listen to another human being without jumping in, without assuming, without making judgment statements. We might see it sometimes in the media around us, people make judgment statements without actually knowing all the facts. Uh, I've got a little confession to make on this. My neighbors and I, we did this last week. We have some flats nearby us that have some people that are, shall we say, somewhat unsavory, and something went missing from the street, and we all, <laughs> we know who stole it. It was them. It was them. And then someone goes, oh, no, I moved that because I was out on the street. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. We probably jumped to conclusions then. Yeah. Now, but that other, th oh, yeah, that was definitely them. Okay. We don't know their stories. We don't know what's happening. Not reacting. Not jumping to conclusions. Not assuming. We don't live in a culture, we don't live in a kingdom where being patient and listening and getting all the information is normative. We react. We jump to conclusions. If we're going to demonstrate a different kingdom. If we're going to demonstrate that we belong to a different place, we need to listen. Look, look at Paul. Comes in 
finds out where the people are, connects with them. He's, the slave girl is following them. He listens to her and doesn't interact with some stuff. He just sees what she needs. He's standing there at the magistrate and he says nothing. So sometimes listening means saying nothing. One of the major commentary debates about this passage is what did the jailer mean by what must I do to be saved? Was that a spiritual question or was that a, hey, I'm in trouble question? You know, how can I get out of this from a job perspective? Paul doesn't even get into that. He, he just jumps straight to what's important. He's listening and he's gauging things properly and not getting bogged down in minutia, not getting bogged down in crazy bits and not getting bogged down into his own needs and his own wants. He's actually listening to the person and, and, and highlighting their needs. Forgiving. Paul forgives. Doesn't hold it personally. Doesn't seek these guys out. Doesn't stress his laws. He doesn't, doesn't take them back to court. He actually forgives them. What's it like to be in that position? And I'm not talking about acting like a condescending person. You know, I've arrived, so therefore you'll get there one day when you're like me and you're as smart. I'm talking about forgiving somebody because you remember what it's like to be struggling. We've got some neighbors right now, and we really, we really enjoy their company, and bless their cotton socks, I've got two girls aged four, four and a half and two, and there is some volume coming off that house sometimes. All right? And one of these girls, how do I say this delicately? She's full on, just like her mum. All right? So I'm not sure who's revving up who there sometimes. And every now and again, we'll come across here and they'll say, oh, so sorry, there was so much noise coming off. And we're like, look, you know, we've been there, done that. You know, it's just how it is. You'll get the other side. What can we do to help? You know? Forgiving others is about remembering what it's like to be in that position. And remembering that God treats us in the same way. God forgives us. Again, this is one of these foundations of grace, foundations of the kingdom, is God forgives us. Notice, Paul doesn't make any demands of this jailer. He doesn't tell him, you need to do this after you release me. Doesn't even make that a condition of telling him the good news. Doesn't say, release me and I'll tell you the good news. Release me and then I'll give you the good, the good news of the kingdom. It's, here's the good news and the jailer responds. God treats us in the same way. He forgives us. He loves us and embraces us. Um, this is one of the ones I was thinking quite a bit about this week. Uh, I've been scanning old photographs this week, uh, this last um, few months in COVID. I found a really good app online and I've been scanning all the old photographs. Um, I'm old enough that some of our photographs were taken with some pretty crappy sort of uh, paper and they're starting to fade, you know, and they're all two by two inch. Who has photographs like that around the house? All right, they're pretty, they're starting, like, they're starting to lose their color. So I'm starting to, starting to scan them all in. And one of the things that I've come across is some pictures of my family uh, when we were quite young. And uh, I'm not sure if any of you know this, but my, my parents split up when I was very young. My mother actually left, my, my father and my brothers and I. So it was just us four guys at home. Hence the roughness, okay? So this is the smoothed out Leon version of the all-male upbringing. And I was looking at these photographs and I saw how happy we were at times and I saw my mother there and I thought I could choose to be angry and bitter about what happened 
or I can choose to forgive and move forward. And when we don't forgive, we stay in the past, we stay locked in the past. Paul could have gone around Philippi screaming about his rights, threatening, writing letters, getting the magistrates in trouble, demonstrating all the things he could have done. But that's the kingdom of Rome. He wasn't playing power games. He wasn't playing one-upmanship. He wasn't playing status. He wasn't playing those games. He was playing uh, no game at all. He was living in the kingdom of God, and he wanted to share the good news. So maybe you've got some things in the past that you haven't forgiven. Maybe you've got some things that bother you still. Maybe there's some issues uh, that are still there. I'm not just saying forgive, forget, and just pretend it's like it never happened. But are you working on those processes? Are you working through listening and forgiving, uh, which is what we see in Paul? Um, I'm going to show you one more slide, and then I'm going to pray, and then that's it for today, or two more slides. Um, James Bryant Smith, The Good and Beautiful God, The Good and Beautiful Life, and The Good and Beautiful Community are really good books, if you haven't read them, that talk about what it means to be a true disciple and take living in the kingdom seriously. They've been quite informative for me. Uh, over the last few years. Um, It's called The Apprentice Series. Uh, Dallas Willard was his mentor, and he works for the same organization. They're very good. The the blue one, The Good and Beautiful Life, uh, takes the Sermon on the Mount seriously about what it means for disciples to truly live in the kingdom, which is what we've seen Paul doing. Um, If you're a bit nerdier, like myself uh, as well, there's two series of books here that you might find interesting. Uh, The one on the left is a whole lot of data about the archaeological digs in some of these cities, and the other one is a series of books about uh, the literary and and political settings of Acts, which as you dip into, you can see all the little connections Luke is making as he he writes Acts. Uh, Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you that we are in your kingdom. I pray that we can put aside the draw cards, the stimulation, the excitement of the old kingdom, but embrace the kingdom that you offer us. I pray that we can take it seriously and not in some big way, but in the small ways that we're given and blessed with on a daily basis. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.